Hi, I'm Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political, the podcast you've been all waiting for because we all know that everything is indeed political. And this time we're looking at a series on where is the money? More specifically, where's the money? And if we want to go and get more technical, let's go to the song. Where's the money? Freddie might remember that. And I've got two very important special people that I'm going to be talking to today because this time we're going to look at money and the movement. The overall concept is that big people have the money, the rich people have the money, and we all know how political they can be with their money. But what about those of us who consider ourselves to be progressive? What are the money issues we deal with? How do we inject in a little bit of capital into making things happen that just may change this so-called democracy that we have in the United States? So I am going to be talking to two friends, one that I've known a little longer than the other. But let me just say this, the topic falls within something I call make a way out of no way. It really typifies these two folks because they were part of something called SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, my favorite organization, although I probably spent the least amount of time with them they made the most impression upon me as an organizer. So why talk about history and why talk about SNCC when we're talking about this situation with the money? That's because a lot of people think about the movement as a bunch of volunteers forever in motion trying to save the world, but even the best of us have to have some money to do something. So I'm going to talk to these two ladies about their knowledge of fundraising in SNCC. I specifically dedicate this portion to young people who are now forming organizations or want to form an organization because some of the stories they're going to tell are going to be very important to your future. A movement is not just calling your friends up, saying we're going to meet somewhere, getting righteously excited about something that happened. But how do you figure out, how do you stay woke? You get woke, but how do you stay woke? How do you stay in tune with what's happening? And how do you build an organization as opposed to just being perpetually mobilized? So that's what these ladies are going to be talking about. I have with me my dear friend, Karen Edmund Spellman who was involved with SNCC, mostly in Atlanta. She worked full-time in the office there back in the day. I'll let her fill in the blanks in terms of the date. She was also involved with the uh, Nonviolent Action Group, which was uh, at Howard University when she went there. And I have also Freddie Green Biddle, who worked in Greenwood and Macomb, Mississippi two very hot spots in the movement to get the right to vote for Black people. They are both co-founders of Veterans 
of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and they have a wonderful website, wonderful website, which everybody out there should just look at. Because if you want to know the story of the Southern movement from the SNCC point of view, you need to get in touch with that. But I digress. So welcome to this podcast, ladies. Thank you for having us. Yeah. So uh, tell us about the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. What was SNCC? Give us some of the history of the formation and uh, what did SNCC do? Either one of you. Okay, I'll start. First of all, thank you for having us, Junius. It's a pleasure being with you. And we are, Freddie and I are both veterans of SNCC, and we are a part of an organization called the SNCC Legacy Project. And that is composed of veterans of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, as well as some young people who are now actively organizing in their parts of the country for social justice. We started the Legacy Project in 2010. Freddie and I were both involved in SNCC during the 60s. The Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee is also called SNCC. That's its acronym. And we were formed in 1960 at the call from Sister Ella Baker, who was then working with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And she pulled together uh, students from all over the South, from predominantly Black colleges, mostly, although there were some others, and from high schools around the country. So if we were to organize today, we would be called Generation Z and Generation Alpha. We were all quite young. Most of us were under 21 years of age. A lot of us were still in school. The group came together in Raleigh, North Carolina, and decided to form a permanent organization called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. We managed to stay together for eight very difficult years, but we considered ourselves the vanguard, the shock troops, the stormtroopers of the movement. We set up our headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia, and moved throughout the South. We had projects in every single state in the South, except for Louisiana, which was controlled, thank goodness, by uh, the folks from CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, who we worked very closely with during our whole time in the movement. So that, in a nutshell, is who we are. Mm -hmm. And I am Freddie Green Biddle, and I'm happy to be here with you all today. But I was sort of lucky that Stick moved into my hometown, Greenwood, Mississippi, in 1962. The fall of 1962, SNCC had originally been down in the southwestern part of the state of Mississippi, and they just decided to come further north. And Greenwood is what's considered to be the heart of the Delta. So as we all talk about the Delta area of the south, we're talking about that Greenwood area. I was in high school, and SNCC came into my hometown, and I, along with my brother George, had to go and find out what these people were talking about doing. And they were talking about trying to get people to register to vote, which was a number one issue that we really wanted to do. So I joined, got involved right away, my brother George and I. And that's basically how SNCC actually worked. They moved into areas and recruited the local people to get them all involved. Well, I'm listening to both of you talk about high school students. Uh, I was growing up in Richmond, Virginia, and when Charles Sherrod, who all of you know is part of 
uh, SNCC was one of the founders. He led the Virginia Union University students and in protests for segregation, against segregation in Richmond. And I was in high school. And I was just like you, Freddie. I wanted to join. I talked to my mother and I said, can I join? She said, oh, no, no, no. They don't want high school students involved. I said, why? Because they don't think you all can be nonviolent. So later on, I talked to Charles Sherrod when I met him many years later. He said, did y'all say that? He said, nope. (laughs) (laughs) That was my mother trying to keep me out of harm's way as she saw it. But anyway, I caught up. Now, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Mississippi and Atlanta during that time. Again, for some more background for people who I don't know where you were if you were my age. You had to have known what was going on, but young people may not know the continuity here. What was actually going on in Mississippi? How did you guys operate and what was the response from the white people down there? Well, the response in the whole Mississippi area was the white folks were doing everything they could to terrorize and put the fear of God into people to stop them from doing what they wanted to do. But what SNCC was doing is in Southwest Mississippi, where they had originally started, they had gone around, met and talked to different people. And they were then talking to, the NAACP had been in Mississippi for a while. So Mega Ed was there. And so we're talking about 61, 62 So he was going around organizing. They then, in return, picked up his contacts, also contacts that Ella Baker, who was an old organizer, had been around in the 40s, and she had different contacts. So Stick began to move into Mississippi, going around to different areas, and the Delta was where the majority of the Black people actually lived. So we're going into the communities, talking with the community people about what do you want? What kinds of changes do you want to have in your area? So SNCC always tried its best to involve as many people as possible and to get their ideas from what what it was. So organization was really being built right there on the ground, from the ground up with ideas with people. That's where the Fannie Lou Hamers came out. So they're really talking about what kinds of changes. And Fannie Lou Hamer came off one of the plantations, the cotton plantations, because that's what was key in the Delta area, these big cotton plantations where people had worked long hours picking cotton, having nothing to actually do. So it was really fertile ground for a movement to take place and to get people to register to vote. As a result of trying to get people to register to vote, the white power structure then began to retaliate against it. They began to burn down churches. They began to shoot in, and they shot into my family's home. You know, uh, everything that they could do to terrorize people, to stop them from doing it. At that particular time, Mississippi was really distributing what they call surplus food, which was really just powdered milk and peanut butter to uh, families who really had, and this was prior to food stamps. 
So that this was supplementary food that they were providing to the families. And so what Mississippi did was they cut off the distribution of food subsidies to the poor people. So what's next there was organized with their northern offices. Dick Gregory then chartered a plane and brought down food to distribute to poor people. Now, this in return created among the Black community a strong sense of support because then they realized that not only were these as Mississippi defined them outside agitators that was coming into town, but this was people who were there to help them and they were going to be there through the hard times with it. So it, it was a what Mississippi considered it as a way to stop people. It really did unite the community around what was really going on because they then saw how SNCC really came forward and helped them when they actually needed help the most. That's a very interesting story that you're telling. And uh, I want to ask Karen, when she got to Georgia, to the SNCC office in Atlanta, were things any different? Uh, No. And as you probably know, they aren't any different today because at this moment, as we speak, uh, Brother Chukwe Lumumba is struggling with a, a really significant challenge by the Mississippi legislature to take over the city of Jackson, where he is the mayor, the duly elected mayor of a predominantly black town. So the tactics have changed, but the intensity of the racism and the repression has never ebbed. <laughs> I think Freddie would agree with me there. Mississippi, of course, was the worst of the worst, but there were many instances of significant segregation and also repression and racism throughout the South and the North. SNCC had chosen specifically to work in the South, but we had a lot of very good support, financially especially, in the North. Shortly after the Freedom Rider took their rides to Jackson and were jailed uh, at Parchman Penitentiary outside of Jackson, Shortly after everyone was released, um, Stokely Carmichael, also known as Kwame Ture, tells a very interesting story about how the SNCC apparatus decided, was in struggle trying to decide, do we stay focused on direct action to try to challenge all of the segregation laws, or do we move into another direction, which at that time was being pushed by, especially by the Kennedy people, and that was to get SNCC involved in voter registration. And that was a, an ongoing discussion. As you probably know, and Freddie can attest to as well, you know, uh, SNCC folks had intense mm-hmm. discussions about everything, okay? And no two people agreed on any particular position. And a lot of debate happened, and a lot of decisions were made at 3 o'clock in the morning when after the debate had died and everybody had fallen asleep, whoever was left, uh, whoever was left awake got, got the vote. <laughs> but it was a very democratic organization and everyone's voice was heard. So the debate about whether we continue direct action or go into voter registration was a hot one. And uh, as Kwame tells the story, he was in New York and was approached by Harry Belafonte, who became probably the most ardent financial supporter 
and also the most important senior advisor, one of the most senior important senior advisors, along with Ella Baker, to the whole SNCC movement. And um, as you know, Belafonte was a very important, commercially successful cultural practitioner of the music of people of the Caribbean, and later as a, a proponent of African culture and African music, and was the one person who introduced uh, Miriam Makiba to the United States. So he was an extremely important person for us because he was able to connect SNCC people to people with means who were very much impressed with the work that was trying to be done by the students and wanted to help to support them. So out of Harry Belafonte's network, relationships were developed between SNCC people and people in what we call the North, mainly in New York City, but uh, expanded to a number of different other major cities across the country when SNCC organized what was called the Friends of SNCC that were located in many of the major cities on the West Coast, in the Central Park, Chicago, the Bay Area. But the New York office was probably one of the most serious uh, efforts to engage people outside of the South in supporting the movement. So let's continue with that. What was your question? <laughs> That's all right. You got in a nice little segue that I can use to go right into the major topic was uh, how did you raise money? How did SNCC raise money? And you already talked about it, but I want to hear some more. Politics of confrontation needs to have people outside the shock troops, so to speak, who are going to raise some money for you. So tell us some more about that, both of you. I understand, uh, Freddie, that you became the treasurer or the uh, accountant in the Atlanta office at some point. So both of you can chime in. What was the major apparatus for raising money for SNCC? Well, I think that basically was the friends of SNCC. So in most of the northern cities, as Karen pointed out, uh, New York being the largest, of course. I mean, New York, Chicago, Boston, the Bay Area, Detroit and all, all these organized Friends of SNCC offices. And these were really volunteers. Some of them were people of means that could really contribute very, very highly. Others were people who had skills and were able to put on different fundraising where we could really send in our freedom singers to sing songs about the movement. We could also bring up stick workers to talk about the different projects and the things that we were really doing. So it was a twofold purpose. It was raising money. It was also spreading the word of what we were doing. We were constantly inviting these people down. Jim Foreman, who was our executive secretary at that particular time, I mean, Jim brought in Marlon Brando, carried him throughout the Delta, showing him the kinds of things, the projects that SNCC was doing, all of which contributed toward funds that the organization could do. There were, you know, as I said before, Dick Gregory was also, there was Harry Belafonte, there was all of these big Sydney uh, all these people who contributed money and also make connections to help us with other people who we were not aware of that were, had deep pockets. 
and making sure that they knew the kinds of things that we were doing and things that they actually supported and wanted to make change in the world that we were living in. Yeah. And just uh, tagging on to what Freddie said, we had our supporters in the North, but for young people who might be listening to this broadcast, I want to point out that the main source of quote funding was actually the people who worked as a part of the organization as volunteers a lot of us never got paid, or if we did get paid, we got paid very little. So we donated our time, our energy, sometimes our lives to the work of SNCC. And we never, ever made a decision, a political decision, based on whether or not we could get funding to support that. We were never a tax-exempt organization. We did consider ourselves nonprofit, but we did not apply for and did not want to get uh, 501c3 status. So anyone who contributed to SNCC was doing it out of the goodness of their heart, not to get a tax relief at the end of the year. And we had a number of individual contributors who not only were the big bucks folks from the New York area, who were certainly important, but a lot of people sent dimes and nickels in the mail contributing, especially young people, you know, gave that kind of money. So we had a diversified funding base. And I think it's important in talking to young people to understand that you need to diversify. You cannot depend on one source of money to carry on revolutionary work. You have to be able to, if the people can't support you, or if the people who believe in you are doing the work can't support you through their volunteerism, then you probably are not going to succeed because a, a foundation gave you a big grant after George Floyd was killed. You can't depend on that. It's historically a fact that those people or organizations that were funded around a particular incident will get a whole bunch of money at the beginning, and then the money will fall off. Now, in the case of SNCC, we certainly did enjoy a fairly substantial amount of income coming in in the early 60s. However, once we pursued our political dreams and pushed for things that were not popular among those white liberals in the North, then we saw a decrease, a significant decrease in the funding from those wonderful meet and greets and things that were organized by uh, the New York office. The other thing is, is that a lot of the friends of SNCC offices began working on local issues. And I was a part of the Washington effort. I went to Howard University and was involved in NAG, the Nonviolent Action Group, as a student, we weren't allowed on campus, but we met across the street from the campus. (laughs) But we were actually SNCC workers who would come back, most of the the mixture. Some people were SNCC workers who just needed to come back and finish school, so they would come back to Howard. That would be the case of Stokely and Stokely Carmichael or Kwame Ture and Charlie Cobb and uh, Cortland Cox and Cleveland Sellers, um, Muriel Tillinghast, uh, just a number of people who were SNCC workers who came back to school. But we were also involved in a lot of grassroots organizing in Washington, D.C., especially around housing, which has always been a problem in Washington. So the, the SNCC actions were all volunteer. We did not have a cent in the treasury. But when Marion Barry came to Washington to organize a funding base for SNCC, he became involved in local grassroots work and started working on the bus boycott in Washington, D.C., and then the Free D.C. movement. So gradually you will see quite a few 
of the Friends of SNCC offices turning to local issues and getting involved in grassroots organizing that was being done in the South. So you have that sort of dichotomy, although our main focus, the organization's main focus was on organizing in the South. Now, you're bringing back some memories there because uh, there was a Friends of SNCC that uh, we organized. It was in the uh, Amherst, Massachusetts, Springfield, all around in that area. So a couple of things. when So when I officially joined SNCC as a volunteer and went to Montgomery, Alabama, and got arrested, went to jail, went to state prison, one of the things that uh, happened was that my bail was very quickly raised because that Amherst group was on the money. I got out of Kobe State Prison faster than I wanted to get out because we had <laughs> we a fellow named Stu House and I. Oh, Stu House, yeah. Uh, we, yes. Yep. Yeah, Stu House and I ended up kind of holding that cell together. We had about eighty guys in one cell. And Worth Long was in charge at first, but then he managed to get himself sent off to isolation for whatever he did down there. So uh, we had said we were going to stay, but that Friends of SNCC group was responsible for getting a lot of people out of jail when they had to be gotten out of jail. Anybody want to comment on that? Well, it's no question about it. It's a during 19, the summer of 1965, when we were working trying to get the voter registration bill passed, there were all these massive demonstrations in Jackson. And we had uh, Jackson overflowed prison, the state prison there. So that then they opened up the fairground is where they put all the people because there were so many people participating in the demonstrations. All these people had to have the bonds raised so that the Friends of SNCC chapters around the country helped raise funds to help get some of the the people out of jail. So this was, it was always a support system, but it was also moving into actions, in direct actions into their own communities too, of programs that they wanted to do. So it's like you're spreading this, the word through the sea as you're planting it around the, the country. Another way SNCC spread the word throughout the country was through another uh, subgroup that you talked about, the SNCC Freedom Singers. Right. I remember meeting and being uh, just completely captivated. This is when I knew I had to be a part of SNCC. I went to see the uh, Freedom Singers when they sang at uh, Smith College down the hall, down the street from where I was in Amherst. And uh, I was able to meet some of the folks afterward. Cordell Regan and I became very good friends after that. And Cordell met a good friend of mine who was a student then at Smith named Merrible Harrington. And uh, they eventually got married. Yeah. So that was kind of like the way the interaction as SNCC spread out around the country. Nobody knew that was going to happen, but it did. Talk to me about the Freedom Singers, how they got started and uh, what kind of people they were. Well, they, they were all old SNCC workers. And this was also one of the impressive things about Jim Foreman. Jim saw 
the Freedom Center is not only as being a cultural part of the whole movement, but also how we could utilize them with spreading the word. And it was also a method that you can really take out and they can go to different places, put on different concerts. And the music itself brings in additional people to help support the whole process. And the Freedom Singers traveled throughout the entire country. Mildred Foreman was their manager, and she basically tried to book them as many times as possible, as many places as possible, to raise funds and also spread the word of the movement. It was major for us. Yeah, Bernice Johnson Reagan was one of the principals there, as well as Cordell Reagan. And Matthew Jones was the songwriter and arranger. So they had wealth of talent within those few people, Rutha May and Betty May Fikes and Rutha. Uh, it would be good at some point for you guys to even have a conversation with the Freedom Singers, because uh, Chico and Charles Neblet, two brothers who were also a part of the Freedom Singers. Chuck especially is very, very vocal and has a lot of great stories about the uh, adventures of the Freedom Singers as they crisscross the country, singing sometimes two and three times a day, all in an effort to help raise money for SNCC. If it had not been for the Freedom Singers, as Freddie has pointed out, I don't think we would have been able to raise the the amount of money that we were able to raise during those early, early years. Duly noted about that invitation. I'm going to take you up on that and get in touch with uh, some of those people. I saw Betty Fikes down in Selma, where she is from. She comes back for the reunions. And uh, I also have seen them now in their professional music stage, especially her, because she's a great blues singer as well. So that music has continued. These were spirituals and uh, work songs and union songs that uh, the movement put together to talk about conditions there, but also to give people the kind of courage they needed to have to go out and face the Klan. I mean, we had the music, they had the guns, and somehow we were able to overcome.
they were an intricate part of the SNCC culture, and SNCC had its own culture, as you you know. Whether or not it was uh, dress style, for example, we became known for our blue jeans and brogans because SNCC believed in dressing like the people that they were trying to organize in the South. So a lot of the counties that we worked in were rural counties, so people dressed as the people did in rural South. And when we came North to do fundraising, because we were all conscripted into doing fundraising. And I have to admit, you know, some of us were less enthusiastic about it than others, because it it seemed to be a little bit like we were putting on a, a dog and pony show. But it was, as Freddie pointed out earlier, Jim Foreman was absolutely adamant about us spreading the word and letting people know what was going on in the South and giving them examples of people who were actually working in SNCC so that people could talk to you about your projects. And our funding was always very specifically project-based, as Freddie can tell you, because we always made a decision that whatever project we were going to be asking money for, that the money went to that project and didn't go someplace else. Freddie, you want to elaborate on that? Well, I think that one of the things that first is in the staff meetings, we always talked about issues. You know, and SNCC decided on the different issues that we were supporting. And then you basically had people who went into the old communities and you worked on those issues. So even in terms of the Black Power, with Willie Ricks shouting Black Power on the Merited March, and which had really been something that had not really been on SNCC's page when James Meredith, who had been the first Black student to go to Ole Miss, decided that he wanted to do this march from Memphis to Jackson. We really didn't feel that at that particular time that it served any real purpose. But once he started the march, and right (laughs) the very first day he was then shot, then we discussed it in a SNCC staff meeting and decided, well, we had to go and help him out and show how this is going to last. So that SNCC organized, we basically got people to go, got staff people to go, and coordinated the march to make it into a success for what it really was. So to support that, then you have to have people who have actually been on the march to go into fundraising so that they would then go into to Friends of SNCC offices and talk to people about it. And you could really give your personal experience of what really happened on that. So it wasn't like a third party telling you something that was going on. And that's always how SNCC always did it. It was always you're bringing up the people who are involved in that, and they're going to meet and talk to people who could possibly donate and give contributions that could help the organization. So that's one of the things that we would definitely tell to the young organizers of today. You have to make sure that you keep your priorities, the things that you consider to be important, and you match them up with the dollars that you want want to really raise. Karen, you talked about the outfits, the clothing is part of the SNCC culture. Mm -hmm. Not only was that a part of the SNCC culture in the South, but 
people who were impressed with that. When SNCC came north and when the rest of us came north, I started working in uh, Newark. We used that same kind of outfit, the blue jean jacket and the blue jeans especially, to differentiate ourselves and our version of Black power from that of the cultural nationalists. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of arguments and wars are all over. Phil Hutchins started a SNCC chapter in Newark. I became very much a part of that. So we didn't want to have too much to do with the other folks who were running around at that time with the African outfits on. I love my African clothes now, but the distinction to be made then in the late 60s was that kind of political situation. Yeah. Phil was a, also a Howard student and a member of NAG, the Nonviolent Action Group. And so he was another example of those workers that came, went back and forth between school and full-time organizing. I wanted to just get back to the question of fundraising and following principles within an organization, because I think that the history of SNCC is probably as good an example as any to point out to young people about how you take a political position and you have to probably pay for that with your funding support. You have to constantly develop new bases of support for your funding. I'd say looking back at the SNCC history, we had probably three different periods where we suffered immense uh, loss of funding just based on our political beliefs and our political positions. The first, I think that we can generally say there was a, a big blow to a lot of the, quote, uh, white liberals was when in 1965, SNCC took a position against the war in Vietnam. SNCC was the first black organization or civil rights organization, I should say, to take that position. And as a result of that, we suffered immensely from our funding base. And um, we uh, counseled young men to defy the draft. To, to, uh, during that time, I don't know if young people know this, but young men who were not in college, and in some who were in college, were subject to being drafted to go into the Army. And you didn't have much of a choice unless you could prove you were something called a conscientious objector, which a lot of people didn't make the test for. So a lot of young black men were being dragged into the army through the draft. So SNCC, opposed, SNCC was the first organization to oppose the draft. Our slogan was, hell no, we won't go. And we encouraged black people, black men, especially who were subject to the draft, not to go on the draft. And as a result of that, we suffered significant repression from the government and quite a few of our organizers were imprisoned because of that position that we took. So that was that was in 1965. Then in 1966, as Freddie had talked about earlier, when the organization adopted a position on and created the Black Power Movement, SNCC suffered again a second financial blow because, of, as you can all remember, the Black Power Movement, if you were old enough to be around at that point, was considered uh, revolutionary. You know, it was, how can you say you want Black Power? You know, why are you wearing your hair so long and nappy? I mean, we had so much reaction to our endorsement and actually defense of Black Power as a concept for organizing, not only in the South, but in the North, that a lot of people stopped funding us. I think we lost a lot of our white supporters at that point when the Black Power Movement came into being. 
And then the third significant blow we took because of our position, our political position, was when we questioned the efficacy of the Israelis taking over the Palestinian land in Palestine. That brought a huge counter blow to us, especially from our Jewish supporters. But we never acquiesced to anything else. You know, we stayed firm on all of our positions against the draft, against black, and against the Palestinian land grab. And we took on the Black Power slogan and defined it and spent two years trying to encourage people to not only um, embrace the principles of Black culture, of Black is beautiful, but also to organize to try to keep their communities under their own control. So local community control, which was basically what we had been doing all the while, became the, the focus of the Black Power movement. And there were others that, you know, that decided to embrace Black Power as well, among the, the most prominent ones being the uh, Black Panther Party for Self-Defense out of Oakland under the aegis of Huey Newton and uh, Bobby Seale. I have one example that I have heard, and I want you guys to confirm or deny this. The story goes that Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier came down to Mississippi with a brown paper bag <laughs> with a large amount of cash because SNCC said, we need the money now, just like that poster said, now. And they, they took buses to get down there or a bus. Is that true or false? Is that just a rumor? You tell us. Well, <laughs> I mean, part of it, the part about the bus is a rumor. They actually flew. They flew everywhere. In, they flew into Jackson to Greenwood. But they did bring us money. So they were our big supporters. And we will stand by it. Even though at that time, it was like 64 but I was in Macomb versus up in Greenwood, which is where they arrived with the money. Mm. So it's true. My sources are reliable. <laughs> You've been very quiet, Francesca. What you got to say? I Well, first of all, I'm just seeing how the bus version is better for the movie. But... <laughs> 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 but I've been over here taking notes on we do a lot of conversations about brand of a movement and what are the elements that bring it together. And there are pieces of the way that you both have orchestrated and what was put together that I have never been told the story that way before. I've never read the story that way of all of the pieces that could even be put together in a brand book of this. This is who the movement acted as in a collective voice and you step into a space this is we know who you are and so that would I, I have it right here blue jeans and uh brogans i'd never heard that before i'd never heard it <laughs> and jean jackets jean, jean jackets, jackets. Yes. I still have mine by the way the original one I, it still fits a yes yeah. can you still wear it no I can right. still wear it. Yeah. <laughs> I do wear it. <laughs> I feel like this whole thing, though, was built perfectly for us to copy now in the social media generation. That's what we need is we need the look. We need that unified voice 
Also, we need to learn better about how to separate fundraising and decision making. So if there's more that you can teach us there, how do you keep the conversations with funders out of the room? As an example, how do you make big decisions without worrying about how you're going to pay the bills in the morning? Well, you got to make your own priorities. It has to be things that you want to make a difference in. And then that has to, that has to be the top of the line. So once you decide what your priorities are, then you really work toward how do you get these priorities funded? See, the other side of the story we didn't tell you is that we either work as volunteers or we work for very, very little paychecks, talking about $10 a week. So you really are really talking about learning how to support yourself. And we, from time to time, we stick people took outside jobs to pay the rent so you could have money to uh, to live off of. So we definitely, but you got to have priorities. I mean, I think it's the question of how you organize your priorities. So it's what you want, not what your funders tell you what they want, you know. Yeah, I want to speak just about the impact of the Black Power Movement on SNCC because that's when I started working full time for SNCC. I went down um, when Meredith was shot. I was a part of a busload of volunteers that worked in the SNCC office in Washington that came down to Mississippi to join the march as we were called to do. This was a mass mobilization, a necessary mass mobilization at the time. And afterwards, I decided I was going to come back to Atlanta and stay and work full time in the uh, National SNCC office there in Atlanta in the research department. But all the while, we had a really difficult challenge trying to convert everybody into thinking positively about Black power. And um, we were being attacked from all directions, not only the government and the FBI, but by some of the uh, traditional civil rights organizations. So we not only were suffering from a lack of funds that dried up, but we also had some attacks that were levied on us from people who had not been our adversaries, but at least hadn't attacked us publicly. So the way I wanted to speak, because I wanted to be specific about how we had to survive and how we went about trying to raise money during the Black Power era. And I have to say that the one thing that gave us the most money during that time was speaking engagements that were arranged for Kwame Ture or Stokely Carmichael at the time across the country. In other words, because Stokely went on speaking tours almost every single week, we were able to stay afloat. So the way it worked was that, let's say, a large university like the University of California in Berkeley would ask for him to come and speak. They would pay a huge fee. And then Stokely, after he spoke at one of these, uh, you know, these feet, these uh, speeches for fee state places, he would go and work in the community and have a second presentation or even a third presentation in a free space where a lot of Black people would be there to listen to his description of what the Black Power Movement was. So we pretty much existed during uh, 66 to 68. Once the Palestinian question was there, that was in 67, I believe. Once that was raised, then all of the Jewish money dried up altogether. So that was our last pot of white money. The liberals had gone quite a, 
back when the war had started, when the Vietnam War position had taken place. So we raised money by speaking engagements. So you talk about trying to, you know, young people need to think creatively and be flexible about how they raise their money. And that actually supported us for almost two years. So I I just wanted to put that, you know, throw that out as a possibility based on a, a historical experience that we had. Speaking engagements raised money for the organization. And as Freddie pointed out earlier, we stopped getting money, period. We didn't get anything. So I started being a typist. I started typing for Howard Moore, who was our lawyer in Atlanta. And Freddie went to work for the Marriott Corporation. I'll always remember that. Because <laughs> she had she had her yellow uniform with the white little white hat on, <laughs> and we we were always hungry because we didn't ever have any money for food. So we'd go down, and Freddie would give us extra French fries. <laughs> we'd order one. You have to be resourceful. That's right. The other thing is, Nick was always uh, the, the forefront of, I mean, we had our own print shop where we produced our own material and stuff. So we really didn't rely upon other people to do things for us. We did a lot of things ourselves. Freddie, tell them about what we did spend our little bit of money for. We definitely had, that's what I'm saying, your priorities, you have to make sure that you have priorities of what you're going to do. So uh, what we really had, since I was doing the bookkeeping there in the Atlanta office, we had certain things. One, the health insurance for our workers had to be paid. We had to pay for our phones because we had all these people working on all of these projects, and they had to be able to contact the office in case of emergency. So you have to set your priorities in terms of things that you needed. And as I said before, is we had our own print shop. So we were producing all of these, this material. We went to a lot of little fights with the post office because we had our newsletters that we were sending out and we were sending them out third class so that the post <laughs> office gave us all kinds of problems. We would take over a bag of mail, they would bring it back the next day. It's not folded the way in which it was supposed to be. I mean, we we manually go through the process, re-put the newsletters back together, but we had our agenda of things that we intended to happen. And one of them was our newsletter. So we had to have the print shop done. We had to be able to do it third class and we, we tolerated a lot of things because we couldn't help it. We didn't have any money, and yet we definitely had the post office giving, throwing back our mail to us periodically. So we would sit there together as a group of people, coordinating, putting together these newsletters. So whereas all these things that the young activists today, all the resources that they have, we didn't have podcast we did not have, we, we had no social media we had none of that we just had our memograph machine our printing press and we had our buck permit where we could do male third class and we had a group of people sometimes manually had to fold them up and make sure that we did it properly ladies this has been fantastic 
I enjoy your humor. I enjoy your stories. And I think, young people, this is what you get to be when you get to be a little older. You get to be two people who know who they are and who are very happy with what they have done. So on behalf of uh, Francesca and myself, Francesca Larson and myself, I want to thank you for coming on and regaling us with uh, not only how you made it, but uh, also how you survived to uh, live again. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Pleasure being here. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks for having us. Bye-bye. I woke up this morning with the man who said I'm beat I woke up this morning with the man who said I'm beat I woke up this morning with the man This is Junius Williams, your host on Everything's Political. Everything's Political podcast is sponsored by the Center for Education and Juvenile Justice and supported by the Terrell Foundation and listeners like you. It is produced by Mosaic Strategies with theme music by Anthony Ant Jackson. Like what you hear? Subscribe to Everything's Political podcast on Spotify and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for exclusive behind-the-scenes content.